All right, church family. Let's grab our seats. For those of you that may not know who I am, I'm Jeremy Vorse. I'm the youth pastor here at Groton Bible Chapel. And I, I feel like I have to confess something to all of you right now. It, it's something that's been uh, on my heart lately. Um, I hate working out. I, can I get an amen, please? Thank you, thank you. I hate working out. And what's really hard about working out is I know it's good for me. Our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, loves telling me all the reasons of why I should work out. And we can all see clearly I need to work out. But there's just something about it that I'm like, I don't want to. And, and the real issue is that people that do work out just make it seem so easy. And that you're just like, oh, no. They always try to get you too. They, they, they say, well, what if you just gave 45 minutes a day? Just 45 minutes a day. That's not much. Just do 45 minutes a day. And I, I think to myself, there are so many other things I would like to do with my 45 minutes a day than to work out and be sweaty and be in pain. But then when you say no, they, they almost view it as like a bargaining agreement now. They're like, well, what about 30 minutes a day? Could you do 30 minutes? Just 30 minutes a day. That's all it takes. Just 30 minutes a day. Still, I'm like, no, I'm good. What about 20 minutes a day? Take out the pre-workout. Take about uh, off the cool down. Just 20 minutes a day of intense workout. Just 20 minutes a day. That's it. No, no. What I've seen lately online is these 10-minute workouts. Just 10 minutes a day. That's all it takes. It's just 10 minutes of your day. And as you can see, still, I'm like, eh, no, I'm good. They try to sell you on how to improve your life because all of these end with to change your life. All it takes is 30 minutes a day. All it takes is 10 minutes a day to change your life. Well, today I, I'm, I'm going to try to sell all of you on something. What if I said to you, would you do six minutes a day to change your life? All it would take is six minutes of your day. Would you do that? If I could almost guarantee you it would change your life. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today, but let's pray. Dear Lord, I do just thank you. God, that you are not some distant God, that you are not just out in the cosmos, but Lord, you love us. Lord, you love us so much that you died for us. You died for us so that we could be in this relationship with you, that we can come to you with our requests, that we can come to you with our pain, we can come to you with our suffering. That Lord, you are a God who hears us. You are a God who's near us. So make that so clear to us today. I pray this in your name. Amen. Throughout this summer, we've been going through the Psalms, and today we're going to look at Psalm 145. Psalm 145, I want to give you guys a little history lesson on. Psalm 145 is one of the acrostic Psalms that each 
uh, verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's nine total acrostic psalms, nine of them total, uh, five of which are attributed to King David. This one is one of those five. And what's unique about this one is, we'll talk about it a little later, there's this idea of the missing nun. That is a, a Hebrew letter that uh, is apparently missing, but as we'll see later, is not missing because the Hebrew alphabet actually has 22 characters in its alphabet, and this psalm only has 21 verses. So we're going to talk about what is this missing nun. So how I broke this whole chapter up is into five sections. The first one that King David talks about is really a call to praise. The first three verses really tell us why we should praise. The next three uh, so verses I, I titled Truth in Action. That it talks about who God is and the response that we should have to it. The next section talks about how God is worthy of being praised. Then we're going to talk about how do we praise God even when it's hard. Finally, King David wraps it up with a conclusion verse in chapter 21. So as we go through this, I do invite you that if you have a physical Bible, feel free to open it up. If you have the YouVersion app, feel free to pull it out and follow along as we go through this psalm together. We're going to start in verse 1, this call to praise. So Psalm 145, verses 1 through 3. I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In this first three verses, David addresses two big questions that we start out the psalm. The first one is, who should be praised? Who should be praised? And as we look through the first three verses, it's pretty evident. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will bless your name. I will praise your name. I, the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So when we ask the question, who should we praise? David makes it very clear. God should be praised. The second question that David addresses in the first three verses is when is he praised? When should we praise God? And again, David makes this very abundantly clear for us in verses one through three. He says, I'll bless your name forever and ever. I'll bless you every day. I'll praise your name forever and ever. David makes it clear to us that God is worthy of praise, not just in eternity forevermore, but he's also worthy of our praise today and forever. That God's not just interested in a relationship with you in the age to come, but in the here and now, the already but not yet. God is worthy of all of our praise. In this next section, or uh, in a commentary I, I read by William MacDonald, he essentially summarizes this psalm by saying, the theme of the psalm is the greatness of the Lord. The psalmist is consumed with this holy determination to exalt, to bless, to praise his God and King, both in time every day and in eternity forever and ever. The gist of this endless song will be 
God is great. And that his greatness is worthy of great praise. And that his greatness is infinite in its dimensions. God is worthy of praise. And so the next section, uh, there's kind of a, a cause and effect that David walks through. That he tells us uh, really the why we should praise and the bigger understanding of understanding who God is and what it really demands of us when we come to that realization. So we're back up into verse 4. The, all right, verse 4. One generation will declare your work to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. In this, David actually is essentially quoting himself all the way back in Psalms 22. David wrote that their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness. And this is my favorite part. To a people yet to be born, they will declare what he has done. Imagine if we talked about how great God is, if we talked about what God has been doing in our life, how he's been faithful in majesty, all of this to the point that we're not just so secure that the next generation will know who he is, but we are firm that the next generation after that will have to know who he is because the generation that we told are so excited about who God is that they can't help but tell to the generation who is yet to come. We continue in verse 5. I will speak of your splendor and your glorious majesty and the wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give testimony of the great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. When we come to this understanding of who God is, it demands something of us. Charles Spurgeon put it as this, true understanding of God leads to deeper reverence and awe, stirring the soul to worship and to serve. Let's look at some of the verbs used in that passage that we just read, verses four through five. I will declare, I will speak, Speak. Afterwards, it says, I will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts. That it says, I will give testimony. I will joyfully sing. That these are not just passive verbs. That these are not just, I will attend. I will hear of what God has done. But I will proclaim. I will declare. And why are we doing these things? Because of his wonderful grace. Because of his righteousness, his great goodness. See, knowledge of God isn't meant to just be internalized. It's not just meant to be selfishly held onto. But we are called to share what God has done in and through our life with others. Francis Chan put it this way. The point of life is to point to him. Whatever you are doing, God wants to be glorified because this whole thing is his. Are you living a life that is pointing to him? The wondrous works that he has done. 
As we continue, David kind of doubles down here and says that if that doesn't sell you on how worthy God is, this next section, like I said, is titled for me that God is worthy. Let's pick back up reading verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, great in faithful love. For those of you that maybe uh, have done some Old Testament survey or anything like that, that verse should ring a bell to you because this verse is a direct quote from Exodus 34. When Moses is on the mountain getting the second set of the Ten Commandments of God, because uh, if you don't remember that Moses went down with the first set of Ten Commandments, got to the bottom of the mountain, saw how depraved Israel was, got so furious that he smashed them on the ground, had to go back up the mountain, go to God and be like, hey God, you got a a spare set? Uh, I, I I kind of broke that first one. And in that, Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. One of the first times God describes himself to us, the words he uses is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. Tim Keller said in reflection of this, God's compassion is a reflection of his perfect love. His slowness to anger reminds us of his patient character. The psalmist continues, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Twice now, David is reminding us of the compassion that God has for us. John Mark Comer makes the point. The compassion of God isn't a cold detachment or hands-off empathy. It is a tender mercy and loving kindness that reaches into our mess. See, God doesn't just stand back, see the events of life unfold, but he gets down into our mess and has compassion on us. Picking up in verse 11, they will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all the people of your mighty acts and your glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. David really wants to hammer in here how truly worthy God is by exclaiming all the reasons why God is worthy of being praised to fully know God like we talked about earlier. J.I. Packer puts it, what, is, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives to know God. What is the best thing in life to know God? What in humans gives God the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. 
Maybe if you've grown up in church or maybe you were homeschooled and so you're forced to memorize these. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Or essentially, what is the purpose of this life? And it is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what this is all about. Coming to an understanding that the God of the universe loves you so much and desires a relationship with you so badly that he gave his only son to die in your place so that you could have a relationship with him. As we continue, the next section I called, When It's Hard. And as we read through it, some of you may be very curious of why I would title it such a thing. And if that's you, I have to be pretty blunt and honest. If that is you, you have a pretty easy life. If that is you, probably means things are pretty up for you right now. Because as we read through this, there are probably several of us in this room that will have one resounding question that I'll answer afterwards. But first, let's dive back into the text. Picking up 13, part B. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and gracious in his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who were oppressed. All eyes look to you. And, they give, and you give them food at its proper time. You're, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all of his acts. The Lord is near all who call to him. All who call to him with integrity. The Lord fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cries for help and saves them. The Lord guards all who love him, but he destroys the wicked. Before we answer the question, this is where we get that missing nun question, or verb. See, in 13 part B, most of your Bibles will have some sort of notation there that this section of the verse isn't in ancient monastic texts. But it was, however, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient writings. And so that is why it's in your Bible today. And I think it's so important that it is in our Bible because I think David particularly put this in for a very important reason. Because if this verse is not true, then it makes the next section really hard. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and gracious in all of his actions. The voice translation has it as, the Lord is faithful to your promises and your acts are marked with grace. Eugene Patterson put it in the message, God always does what he says and is gracious in everything he does. But as we read that section, there's probably several of you that as we were reading, you said, What about me? God, when I was in need, where were you? God, when I called out to you, I didn't have you respond. When I'm hungry, you are not there giving me food. What about me? 
See, some of you were sold on Christianity as if you're facing hardship in life, just come to Jesus. Everything will be good for you. Just come to Jesus with all your problems. He will solve every problem you have. And I hate to tell you that's not true. Jesus made a pretty big promise before he left this earth. He said, in this world, you will have hardship. In this world, people will hate you. If you came to Jesus because you thought it would be easy in life, that's not true. But Jesus also made a promise at the end of that. He said, take heart for I have overcome this world. What Jesus did on the cross made it possible for us to face these kind of hardships. Tim Keller put it, anyone who only sticks with Christianity as long as things are going his or her own way is a stranger to the cross. The cross changed everything. There's an author that I've been listening to and reading lately named Albert Tate. He wrote a book that recently came out called Disobedient God. And when I first heard that title, I was like, oh, can we say that in church? God's not disobedient. But how many times do we say, God, if you only blank. God, if you just did blank. Or better yet, my favorite, if I was God, I would blank. Trusting a God who goes off script. I want to read you a small excerpt from this book. This is Albert Tate having an interaction with one of his friends talking about the pandemic that we just went through and how it really disrupt, uh, disrupted so many of our lives. And they were talking about if, what if this was a test uh, of God really seeing if we would trust him even when things don't go our way. And Albert makes this remark. What if God is saying, even when I'm disobedient, can you still rest in me? Even when I've got you in a place you would have never signed up for, can you still take time and trust me enough to rest in me? Can your response to my disobedience, my sovereignty, to me being a God who refuses to compromise my will because of your passionate desires. Be one of rest and not running. You don't replace me. You don't perform for me, but come here. Rest in me and allow me to be the sovereign God that I am. I'm faithful and I can get you through the hard times. I love that Aaron Crenshaw brought up Joshua chapter one last week. I want to reread that for us. Joshua chapter one, starting verse six. Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I have sworn to your fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe 
carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses has commanded you. Do not turn to your right or to your left so that you will have success in whatever you do. This book of instructions must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may be carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. What I love about that call from God to Joshua is he's not just saying, don't worry, don't stress out, don't freak out. But he tells them what to do. Joshua in his life faced so many things that earthly wise, we should freak out about. But instead he says, meditate on my word. Look that I am a faithful, trustworthy God. And then he ends with, and whatever you face, know I will go with you wherever you go. About 1,400 years later, Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. Philippians 4, starting in verse 6. Do not be worried about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's not just telling the church of Philippi, don't stress out, don't be freaked out, don't worry like the rest of the world, but he tells them what to do in those situations. When you feel like life is closing in on you, look to God. Go to God. Not just go to God, but go to God with thanksgiving in your heart. Praising him. What I love about these two sections of verses in the Bible that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians about 2,000 years ago. Joshua was about 3,400 years ago. And just now, today, we are learning how our brain actually functions this way. That this idea of praise and anxiety don't go hand in hand. In fact, our brains don't do a great job of doing these two things at the same time. Big reason for that is that when you praise, it releases dopamine and serotonin into your body. When you have anxiety, it releases cortisol and adrenaline into your body. These are chemicals that have very adverse effects for one another. There are some studies even being done right now that talk about the different parts of your brain literally cannot interact the same way that when you praise and when you are worried about something. Who would have thought that 3,400 years ago that when God said, do not be afraid, instead focus on me and worship me, that he knew what he was talking about. 
Who would have known that 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this letter to the church of Philippi that he would say, do not be worried about anything, but in everything, go to God. See, praise is not just about coming here and worshiping together. John Mark Comer puts it that praise is not just an action, that it's an orientation. It reorients our hearts and minds towards what truly, the one who truly matters. That's why on the Sermon of the Mount, when Jesus was talking about what not to be worried about, don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you'll dress, that he ends it with, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided you. A little bit later in his sermon, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For anyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Now let me tell you what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying, be like, hey Jesus, uh, rent's due next month. Um, if I can get $2,000 in my bank account tomorrow, uh, just so I have enough time that the check will clear. He's not saying, go, hey, Jesus, my, my marriage is rocky right now. Jesus, you need to fix this right now. I, I'm knocking. I'm coming to you. You need to fix this. Hey, God, don't you see my relative in the hospital as we speak? Hey, God, aren't you doing something? That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is when those things are coming in your life, come to him. Seek him. Get close enough to him that you can ask. Get close enough to the door that when you knock, he opens. And behind that door, you come face to face with the creator himself. And then all of a sudden, those problems don't seem as big. Those worries don't seem that bad anymore. There's a verse in Psalm probably arguably one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible. I'm really surprised we didn't cover it this summer, but maybe it's because it's so well known. But in Psalm 23, verse 5, there's this particular verse that has always stood out to me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Church family, that's not where I want Jesus to make a table for me. I don't want Jesus to set up a table surrounded by people that hate me and I strongly dislike. When I get there and I walk in and I see this room filled with these people, I'm like, Jesus, I don't want to be here. I don't like this. But when I come and I sit at the table and I come face to face with the one who prepared the table for me, I could care less who's in that room. Louis Giglio wrote a book recently called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. That he talks about this verse and the temptation that it is to look around the table where God calls us to just sit with him. Which brings us to our conclusion of Psalm 145. The last verse, verse 21. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. 
Let everything bless his holy name forever and ever. That's what I want my life to say. At the end of each day, no matter what comes up, no matter if my kids are being crazy, I want to declare the praises of the Lord. If money gets tight, I want to declare the Lord's praise. So how do we do this? Well, go back to my pitch at the beginning. What if I could change your life in six minutes a day? Just six minutes. See, I'm not the fastest reader in the world, but I can get through Psalm 145 in just under two minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Psalm 145 is included in an old Jewish prayer that was meant to be prayed three times each day. Rabbi Avina in the first century said, anyone who recites the Psalm of David referring to Psalm 145 three times every day is assured a place in the world to come. Now what he's not saying there again is he's not saying, all right, if you do A, B will happen. What he is saying is imagine if three times a day you took time and remembered how much God is worthy of being praised. That it causes this reaction in us. That each day you begin, have in the middle of your day and end with, my mouth will declare the Lord's praises. It will change you. It will force a change in your life. But that's not where we're going to end. Some of you know I hate when I preach and people come up to me afterwards and say, great job, because this is not the point of this. There needs to be a response. So going back to my metaphor at the beginning, I decided to give you guys a workout response. So I have three different levels that you can sign up for today. We have the silver plan, the gold plan, and the platinum plan. I don't know why workout programs never have a bronze plan. They always just start with silver. But we're going to go in reverse order, actually, because today I want to talk to those of you that you know you have an issue with anxiety. That you know you're not praising God enough. So we want to start with those of you that are here today. You say, I know I need a life change. I know I need to do something drastic to get right. The platinum plan is to do Psalm 145 three times a day. Recite this psalm three times every day, whether it's six, noon, and six. Maybe you work at EB, so it's like 3.39 and 2.30, whatever it may be. Just take time out of your schedule. Set a reminder on your phone. Read Psalm 145 three times a day. For some of you, you're like, Jeremy, I... This is only like my first second week. I don't really like reading that much. For you, I invite you to do the silver plan. It's pretty easy. Read Psalm 145 just every morning. Take time out of your morning every single morning and read Psalm 145. In my house, we have uh, a little phrase that we say, Scripture before screen. That first thing in the morning before my wife or I touch our devices, we want to go to God's word. 
I have some friends that have the phrase, Bible before breakfast. Before they feed themselves physically, they want to make sure they feed themselves spiritually. One of my favorites I've ever heard, though, is his word before my words. Before a word comes out of your mouth in the morning, listen to what God has to say. Start out your morning every day with Psalm 145. Even still, some of you are like, Jeremy, I'll try that, but I can't guarantee it. My challenge to you, if that is you, do the silver plan. Silver plan is just make praise a daily practice in your life. If your only time of praising God is Sunday mornings here, you are missing out. With technology, it's so easy. Alexa, play top worship songs 2023, and then all of a sudden, praise is filling your room. When you're in the car driving somewhere, instead of turning on the radio, listen to worship songs. Come talk to a band member, talk to one of the pastors. Say, what is a worship song you are praising right now? We would love to share with you. Because worship is so much more than just here on Sunday mornings. There's a quote by William Law that says, would you know who the greatest saint in the world is? It is not the one who prays the most or fasts the most. Is it not the one who gives most alm or is eminent for temper, chastity, or justice? but is the one who is always thankful to God, who wills everything God willeth, who receives everything as an instant of God's goodness, and as the heart always ready to praise God for it. In a little bit, we're gonna enter back into a time of worship. But as I was preparing this message, a song from my middle school, high school days came to mind, called Came to My Rescue. And what I love about this song is that it talks about exactly what we were talking about today. It says, I called and you answered. God, you came to my rescue, but the song does not continue with, and all of my problems got solved. It doesn't end with, and my marriage got put back together. It doesn't end with, and I finally let go of that addiction. I called, you answered. God, you came to my rescue, and I just want to be where you are. When we come to that realization, that God loves you so much that he has prepared a table to sit and just be with you. You don't care about what's going on around you. That's where you wanna be. Let's pray. Dear Lord, let us pull up a seat to your table. Lord, I thank you that when I was surrounded, 
you were right there with me. That when there was so much chaos in my life, you just wanted me to look to you. So God, I pray that as we know who you are, as we hear about all you've done, that we would just praise you because you are so worthy of every moment of our praise, not just now, but forever and ever. Amen.